0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. The whole quest in life is one of discovering that innate divinity, that innate connection that we have with that universal creative timeless force you know, that is out there. And there are certain practices that can help take us there And one life may be enough or it may not. And if it's not, then there is the afterlife, which is that after a while, you come back and you're reincarnated because life is school. And the goal is to help advance your consciousness, to get to that place. And you will keep recycling ultimately until you get there. And along the way, while we may not have memories of our past lives, there is this thing called karma, which is the connective tissue between our past, our present, and our future, and that's, you know, the energies that we create in the world and what we put out there and the consciousness with which we operate and the habits that we, you know, take on. Reincarnation as a vehicle through which to give us a second chance and a third chance and keep us growing and karma as that connective tissue. I'm Srini Rao, and this is
0: the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
1: My pleasure to be here and with your audience. And uh, yeah, thank you, Srinivas, for all the great work you're doing.
0: Ah, oh, thank you. So I I found out about uh, your work by way of somebody on your team who wrote in to tell me uh, a little bit about what you do. And uh, you know, I, I think to me, what intrigued me so much about your story is you're this sort of walking paradox of blending, you know, sort of this very intellectual side with this very spiritual side. So I I want to start with what I feel is a very fitting question, given the nature of your work. Uh, and that is what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how did those end up impacting the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: It's a beautiful question. Um, I was born and raised in India uh, as part of the, um, you know, the mainstream faith of Hinduism there. And um, that said, there are so many dimensions and, you know, choices and paths within that faith that uh, it's important to also double click a little bit more to understand sort of what, you know, what aspect of it, you know, was uh, what I was exposed to. So um, one key aspect that I was exposed to was around really respecting that human quest for discovering the answers to the hard questions in life, right? Like what happens after you die? What's, you know, what's my connection with the rest of the universe, right? Is family just the people who are of the same so-called blood or, or what about the rest of you know, life on this planet, and, you know, et cetera? And so uh, that was you know one of those uh, you know, aspects of Hinduism that really sort of got inculcated in me, in my DNA, through the kinds of practices I was seeing from my parents. And then the other one was the more practical side of seeking to have a path, a teacher, a teaching that gives you a stepwise approach towards self-realization towards discovering the fullest potentialities that exist within each and every one of us. And I was very grateful that I was around 10 or so when I kind of like discovered my teacher, my teaching, my path in the work of, who became the founding father of yoga in the West when incidentally, coincidentally, uh, he came to the United States exactly 100 years ago in 1920, uh, Yogananda. And uh, his teaching, his... um, his uh, way of translating timeless, you know, scriptural wisdom into a practical modern form and seeking to blend Eastern and Western into one integrated view of what like a good life can be about was something that I picked up from my faith, but also taught me to embrace and appreciate truth from wherever it comes in the universe. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. See the, the I guess that, you know, like I said, it's, it's fitting that I'm talking to you on the day when I published this, you know, article about the 10 universal principles that can guide us today, because you have had very different experiences with faith in that to me, what I experienced as a Hindu was, you know, idol worship and ritual that seemed to have no real rhyme or reason behind it. And it felt more like superstition than faith. And the thing is that, you know, it seems like you were exposed to very sort of deep Questions about the meaning of life at a very very early age. Uh, why do you have that contrast? Because I, I can't imagine that I'm the only one who grew up the way I did with you know the my experience with Hindu religion to the point where I basically told my parents, look, like, look, I'm happy to go to the temple uh, once a year on New Year's, but other than that, uh, you know, leave me out of this. And and you know, like to to appease them, I will participate in pujas and all this stuff. And at the same time, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, like I don't entirely believe any of this
1: i relate so much you know with you and in some ways that um, you know that uh, struggle that you experienced is the big question of the ages i mean so many people are turning away you know from from church and from religion because they're not being very compelled you know by those kind of blind faith like ritualistic like external practices the kinds that you were just talking about and yet by getting somewhat um you know un, untethered from those They're also getting a little bit unmoored at times because there's a spiritual core to faith and tradition that sometimes gets a little bit sacrificed in that same, you know, kind of, you know, rejection of some of these outer practices. And I, I went through a little bit of that. So, um, I think it's very mainstream, you know, the, the kind of practice that you're talking about of rituals and, you know, idol worship and, you know, et cetera. And it's there very actively in the India I was growing up, um, I was, I guess, fortunate that my parents, you know, saw their spiritual quest to be as much the inner as the outer. And by virtue of that, I was able to get exposed to the inner, you know, the inner journey. And Yogananda's teachings were essential to me for that. And once I got exposed to that, I found my home. I found my, my way to get to the answers that I was looking for. And I actively rejected most of the outer, the kinds that you're talking about. But in rejecting the outer, I was going deeper on the inner, as opposed to completely distancing myself, you know, from the faith, which I feel very fortunate about. What I've learned from, you know, teachings like Yoganandas, right, which are just a repackaging of of ancient wisdom, right, is that for every great faith, there is an exoteric, which is the superficial, the outer, the form-based, the part that is very temporal, it's very tied to kind of what's happening at that moment in the history of civilization and the sensibilities of the people and all of that. There's the exoteric, but then there's the esoteric. And the esoteric are these more mystical kind of quests about, you know, is there like a higher power and is there this energy, is there a consciousness and what's my connection to the rest of, you know, kind of life, uh, both times past, present and future and all of that. And that, you know, that esoteric stuff cannot be just absorbed merely by, you know, kind of blindly following a certain ritual or a tradition or a messenger or a priest or what have you. It has yeah. to come from deep inner work, from self-discovery, from a certain kind of like, you know, effortful pursuit of the inner life. And uh, and that makes, to me, religion and spirituality much more real, more satisfying, more authentic, more true to myself. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny
0: because I think that in my mind, when I you know, like to me, religion was this sort of implicit contract with God. It was like a quid pro quo with God where you know parents would be like, All right, pray before you go into this test. And like, you know, I still remember sitting in an economics midterm with a Ganesh thinking I was like, Oh yeah, this is gonna make sure I get a good grade. And of course I did terrible on the test, and I was like, Okay, wait a minute. But you know, the reality is, I think it's like, well, maybe you should have just studied harder and not depended on God to ensure that you get a good grade on this. Because I think that that was kind of my ongoing understanding of you know this this experience of God. But um, you know, the thing is, I still remember I had an experience in India where I went to this place called Shirdi, which is this holy place. Um, that my, my dad insisted that I go to, he said, look, just go, you know, go to the temple for a day. He's like, that's all I'm asking. And, you know, I said, okay, fine. And this was 2007 and we got there and I I kind of was shocked to see the things that people were willing to do in the name of God. Um, you get there and the lines are atrocious. I mean, of course it's India, so it's crowded, but People are shoving each other. They're pushing each other. And my uncle turns to me. He says, yeah, you can even go and, and, you know, pay your way to the front of the line. And I said, people do that at nightclubs to bribe bouncers. And you can do that in a holy city to go and see God. I'm like, doesn't that kind of go against the very thing that this is all about?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's... uh... I mean, that's amusing, but it's also a, you know, a sad commentary on how I think, you know, we have gotten a little bit muddled in our quest for, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, kind of enlightenment in getting so caught up in the outer forms that have gotten a little bit frozen in, um, you know, over time in certain sort of ways, whether it's the rituals, whether it's the behavioral expectations. And what we're talking about here, although it's a conversation that, you know, one person raised in the Hindu faith is talking with another raised in the Hindu faith, we're actually really talking about my professional, you know, journey as well, because in leadership, which is, you know, which is what I teach, it's the same thing. We get so cemented and caught up in judging and assessing and striving for the right outer behaviors, thinking that if I can mimic, for example the turtleneck and jeans that Steve Jobs wears, I might get a little bit closer to his greatness, you know? And what we don't realize is that the essence of, of life and of leadership really in some ways lies within. It lies in the spirit, the consciousness, the intention that we bring to every moment, right? And so um, I'm, I'm empathetic, you know, with that puzzlement that you went through in that moment and yeah. I'm sure that you have evolved and grown a lot since then. You're being a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, what do you think about like the conversation you are having? And is this all? I mean, I'm guessing this is all not new to you, right? Like you, you have no.
0: So I'll tell you what prompted me to want to start with this. You know, as I, we alluded to, I published this post on, on principles from Hindu mythology, and um, what even piqued my interest in this was I was at my uh, parents' house. This was before I took a surf trip to India in September. And one of my parents, one of my uncles was there One of my parents, friends, and we were talking and we we're talking about the temple and, you know, we got into, uh, you know, Gita and, and like, you know, Ramayana and Mahabharata. And he actually said, he said, Trini, he said, like, these are the very books that you love to read. They're filled with all sorts of spiritual lessons and and life lessons. He said, the problem is that nobody knows any of them because now they're, you know, as i Alluded to buried in idol worship and, and ritual that doesn't make any sense. And so when I went back this time, I you know decided to just look for for you know translations and and you know so things that, versions of this this advice that had been made accessible to modern audiences in forms that were a bit more readable. And what I was surprised to find was that he was absolutely right. And I thought to myself, well, nobody talks about these. I've never went to the temple and had somebody talk to me about overcoming adversity. Um, you know, importance of connection with family, like these kinds of things, you know, you, particularly with the Mahabharata was like the one that really, as I was writing this article, it struck me, I, you know, I said, you know, you probably know this well from having grown up in India. We used to read these comic books as kids that would pretty much teach us all of these stories to the point where any Indian person who took a South Asian studies class at Berkeley didn't even have to study. We studied using comic books the night before the midterm because we knew all these stories inside and out. But what struck me as I was doing a deeper dive was that we learn the story, but we very rarely learn the moral. And not only that, we often were taught to not to overlook the difference between good and evil. And those we thought were good actually did many dishonorable and unconscionable things. So <clears throat> the thing is, I think for me, there is a difference between faith and superstition. And to me, a lot of what I'd experienced felt a lot more like superstition, um, like I said, there was the example of Indians don't get their haircuts on Tuesdays. And, you know, and apparently even you didn't have an answer for me in our conversation before we hit record uh, to the point where the answers were hilarious. When I went to Quora, it was like barbershops are closed on Tuesdays in India. Well, that, you know, well, and still in America, people don't get their haircuts on Tuesdays when they're Indian. Um, I mean, it just so that's the thing. Like, I, I think for me, as you know, from being an interviewer, my natural you know, uh, inclination is to ask why. So you know, uh, and I don't know if this is just a random thing, but you know, when we buy new cars, we put four lemons under them and we drive the lemons over them. This is like the puja for the new car. When I asked my mom why do we do this, she said, "I don't know. We just do."
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me. You know, I am a mathematician by sensibility. You know, that's yeah. the my, that was my first love, and um, it took me it took me a lot of effort to actually. Consciously choose to walk away from it when I finally decided I wanted to kind of you know engage more you know, socially and in business with the world and you know and all of that. But I always seem to go back to those instincts when I approach any of the harder kind of challenges and questions in life. So mathematically, if you were to ask me, Srinivas, as to like the core tenets of this faith of Hinduism, right, much as it's gotten caught up a little bit in this um you know, distracted, ritualistic kind of forum, you know, over, over the dark ages. And the, you know, um, vestiges of that are still with us, even though we we're entering a little bit more of an age of enlightenment. Uh, those, those axioms to me, those core essential truths of Hinduism, which is what have really inspired me and guided me, I would offer a, kind of like the following. You know, the first is that there is a creative force and energy behind everything behind everything, one single unified creative force and energy. The second is that that creative force is not distinct from you and me and from the, you know, objects around us. It is actually that each of us is a drop of that ocean. And not just are we a drop of that ocean, we are the whole ocean in the drop that we are. And the whole quest in life is one of discovering that innate divinity, that innate connection, that we have with that universal, creative, timeless force, you know, that is out there. And there are certain practices that can help take us there. And one life may be enough or it may not. And if it's not, then there is the afterlife, which is that after a while you come back and you're reincarnated because because life is school and the goal is to help advance your consciousness to get to that place. And you'll keep recycling ultimately until you get there. And along the way... While we may not have memories of our past lives, there is this thing called karma, which is the connective tissue between our past, our present, and our future. And that's you know the energies that we create in the world and what we put out there and the consciousness with which we operate and the habits that we you know take on. So so these core constructs of the creative force, the individualized soul as an expression of that in each of us, our ultimate divine potential reincarnation as a vehicle through which to give us a second chance and a third chance and keep us growing, and karma as that connective tissue. Those are the axioms that I use when I think of myself, you know, in, influenced and shaped by the faith. And all of this outer stuff about whether you cross the, you know, about whether you <laughs> once the cat has crossed the road or whether this thing happens on Tuesday, to, to me, that's a major distraction. And I just
0: kind yeah. of keep it out, you know? Okay, interesting. Um, I want to come back to all of this. But before we do, uh, I actually want to do a dive into your actual career trajectory. I mean, you mentioned that you are a mathematician by trade. Um, and, I, you know, I, I wonder, you know, what, what led you down that path? Because, you know, as I joke to people, I am the Indian person who sucks at math. Or so I thought and my dad always used to say math is the only subject in which, you know, there, you know, it's completely uh you know, objective when I would get bad grades in my English classes, he would be like, Hey, you know, focus on math. Cause he's Indian. That's what Indian parents do. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, you have had this really sort of, I think you're a true mathematician in the sense of, of, you know, somebody that I could learn something from where I could apply, you know, universal concepts from math to my daily life, as opposed to sitting in a calculus class, learning how to find derivatives.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, um, you know, initially for me, I didn't have a whole lot of self-awareness, except I just had this like strong intrigue, attachment, engagement, joy, you know, from 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 mathematics. And I became a lot more introspective in my 20s as I started to really ask myself, you know, what, what my relationship with this discipline is and, and then how that connects me with life and with the world and with ultimately the need to choose a profession and all of that. And initially, for a while, it looked like I was divorcing myself from this discipline. I was kind of like walking away from it in choosing to pursue more of a business career, work more in management consulting, go to Silicon Valley, do a startup. But over time, I realized that actually that those central tenets of mathematics have informed and guided me at every step of my journey. And that rather than distance myself from them, I've sought to reinterpret them and re-express them in broader terms in a world that may not be necessarily numerical or full of abstract mathematical symbols but, but there is still the opportunity to bring that sense of essentialism that sense of relationships between entities that hunger to look for patterns and to find some kind of timeless truths which is what you know mathematics is about to find that even in the arena of human behavior and of life
0: wow Um, so, so why is it that somebody basically like me who was okay at math basically goes into a class like at college and looks at it and suddenly we went from being able to make sense of all of this to this is just Greek to me. So even when I got to computer science, yeah, I remember taking one computer science class and of course there's a, a strong overlap between math and computer science and you get to this concept called recursion and that was it. I knew I was, I was about to get a D in the class and I dropped it for the semester you know I, I, and i think that something happens somewhere along the way where we look at something like mathematics particularly the kind of mathematics that you do the the stuff we see in goodwill hunting and it appears to us so daunting that we're like we would not dare touch something like that when you know how do you get back to a place where you're able to go and say okay look this is incredibly complex but i'm smart enough to actually go and find what's useful in it you know to go look for what you're talking about, because I'll give you an example just for for context. So Naval Ravikant had mentioned, you know, sort of this concept of, you know, if you really want to develop your knowledge base, you know, he said, you should read the foundational text in any given field. And he said, instead of reading a hundred business books, read the wealth of nations. Now I was a C minus student in economics at Berkeley. And so something like that would have baffled me, you know, it just wouldn't have been accessible. So I actually sat down and I read it. And I was stunned by how it allowed me to see my business. Like I could actually see how I run this business through the lens of everything Adam Smith talks about for the first time. But, you know, that is not something that, I mean, it took just happening, coincidentally reading a tweet. Otherwise I would have written it off as, okay, this is archaic. It's difficult to understand. I wouldn't touch it. And I kind of feel that way about mathematics.
1: Yeah. I think that was a beautiful, you know, piece of guidance that he gave. And it's a testament to your you know, ever evolving, you know, self and your commitment to growth that you took it on and you uh, experienced such you know beautiful breakthroughs from it, and, and I love that thought. I love that thought because um, when I've studied, for example, great leaders from history, one of the things that I find across them is the commitment to radically simplify and to define for themselves that core essence. Or what their principles are, what their guiding sort of you know uh, uh, you know practices are going to be. Uh, so you take Abraham Lincoln for example. You know, here is a man, one of the most lettered people right in American politics, where his first inaugural, his second inaugural, his Gettysburg Address, etc. These are these are you know works of literature. I mean, they're, they're incredibly beautifully crafted ideas, thoughts, sentiments, and yet he had one year of formal schooling and he was minimally minimally read but what he read he went really deep into absorbing it into his dna and then expressing and practicing it in all his legal craft his political craft his public engagement etc and to my knowledge there were three basic tomes which were really informing and guiding him the first was the bible the second was shakespeare he just he just loved shakespeare and the third, interestingly, was Euclidean geometry. He got this book on on Euclid and his axioms and ways to prove certain mathematical propositions, and he started to find that framework very helpful in thinking about democracy, about liberty, about the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, etc. And so, so that you know, that's just one example where um, it plays to that advice that you got from Naval that that. Um, Going to the, the classics and just going deep into them can give us much more at times than the state of busyness and clutter that our mind can take on if we are constantly trying to race against time to read and master the latest like top hundred books of the you know last year.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well,
2: Um,
0: well, I, I think that that makes a, a perfect segue to, to one other piece of this I want to talk about. You, having heard our interviews, probably know that there's no way you and I are going to get out of this conversation without me wanting to talk to you about mm-hmm. education. Um, you've been a professor. Um, you are a professor, and so the thing that I wonder, you know, as I, I jokingly say, I'm a failed byproduct of, of the traditional education system. I mean, even though I'm I'm not really, but. I have felt that, you know, we've created a system in which we force square pegs into round holes and it works for a lot of people. It works well enough that there's no reason to question the structure of it. Of course, now we're in a moment in history where we're being forced to finally question these institutions and structures that have been in place. And I wonder, as somebody who has worked at an educator, as an educator, not not only as an educator, but one of the most elite institutions in the country, What do you think is wrong with it? What do you think is right about it? What would you change about it from your vantage point?
1: You know, I'm very touched that you asked me that question because uh, you hit upon a chord that has been really active in me over the last few months. And um, yeah, this is really the first opportunity that I'm getting to, in a, if you want to call it more public forum, you know, express and explore some ideas that have been germinating, you know, o- over this time. And I'd be curious about your reactions, your audience's reactions. So so thank you for offering that up. And, and, and let me let me see what justice I can do to a, a powerful question that you're raising. First of all, um, you know, my personal education was in the uh, system in India, uh, all the way through school and then college. And then I came to the United States for graduate school. Uh, Since then, I have operated here in the United States, and therefore, my exposure, certainly over the last couple of decades or so, has been more to American institutions. And uh, so I can speak a little bit more, you know, to those. But some of the comments I'm going to offer, I think, are applicable probably for school and university systems uh, for for a large part of the world. Um, There are many things here in America that I really like about our educational system in the manner in which, for example, it fosters curiosity a certain independence of thinking, a certain respect for that very personal quest that each of us is on to carve out kind of our own niche, you know, in the world and find our own calling rather than rigidifying and creating like very siloed, you know, disciplines and pushing us to, you know, kind of like just like pre-choose at a very early stage and then get, get stuck with it. The capacity to reinvent yourself, to stay ever curious, to um, open people up to various kinds of educational, immersive, like opportunities, all the way through the life, etc., is is an aspect of higher education in America that I am really grateful for, and I feel has been a strong force in a culture that you know, while it's under siege in many regards, is still got many leading light aspects to it, right, in terms of what it can offer the world. Now that's it. Um, oh, by the way, and also the commitment to a scientific, you know, sensibility, a process of fact based. Data-driven experimentation-based discovery of knowledge, and that is open to questioning some of the orthodoxies of the past. I think I think those are all some of the you know, inspiring strengths of this of this uh, of this system. The, the fact that it brings together people of a very international milieu, right? We we tend to have a fairly significant international presence. Here, here at Columbia and in many peer schools, and all of that. And I think the way it throws people into these situations a lot of diversity of thoughts and cultures and all that around them is beautiful. What I think we need to do, though, to reimagine and reinvent these institutions and education for the kind of humanity that we see so much of a yearning and striving today from people, from society, to want to sort of enter, to want to kind of like walk into, is, is the following. I think that what's missing is an appreciation that we are not just functions of our intellect. We are whole beings that also have heart, that have feelings, and that also have a spirit that nurtures and fires us up from within. So we need to find a way to help support the growth in that whole person, not just in the intellect. One part of that is to have more reflections and classes and learning journeys which are around themes of morality, around philosophy of life, around the hard questions, the kinds we were talking about earlier, bringing in perhaps more spiritual pursuits and explorations in the educational arena as well. But another part of that is to move away from purely, if you want to call it, intellectual tests of when we have mastered a certain discipline. Instead, to a place where we can demonstrably show that we have grown and developed the human condition that you are walked out from our educational program, not just more informed, but also a better human being. You know, how can we, how can we help you sculpt character? How can we help you tame certain bad habits? How can we help you shift certain mindsets into a more expansive and unified kind of place? Um, And so that to me is something that education hasn't yet fully mastered and understood and invested in cultivating in people. And it's something I'm giving deep thought to. It's sort of like, sort of, you know, what if there was a school for life and leadership where we recognize that each of us is invited to maximize our positive impact with whatever resources that we have available to us, which keep changing and evolving over the course of our, you know, career and our lives. But what are the core qualities that you and I and we all need to develop, whether it's empathy, whether it's gratitude, whether it is inquiry, whether it is a growth mindset. What are those core qualities and how can we create an environment where we are not making people compete for the best grades, but we are inviting them to be in a supportive learning community, to practice, to stumble, to fail safely, to get feedback, to do more practice and application, and over the course of a year or two years or four years, emerge a little bit closer to being the best versions of themselves.
0: Okay, so so several questions come from this, as you might uh, imagine. One: Do you have children? I have uh, one child, and she's a daughter, eighteen. Okay, so I'm going to come back to that um, because I have a question about that. Um, I think there's an interesting paradox at play. Now, you mentioned the the beauty of the American education system is exactly what you mentioned, the opportunity for curiosity, self-discovery, all the things that we're talking about, these sort of rich, sort of, you know, expansive things that go beyond letter grades and intellectual accomplishment. But the very people who get into institutions like the ones that you teach at have been conditioned their entire lives to pursue exactly that, because that's how they get there. I know this as a Berkeley undergrad, which is why I asked the question about your daughter. And that's kind of an interesting paradox. So you You've been taught your entire life. I mean, particularly you grew up in Indian family. I, I still, till this day, will never forget this conversation my dad was having with um, one of my, my distant relatives. We had you know, a son in high school, and my dad said, uh, what is he interested in? Does he you know want to be a doctor? Does he want to be a lawyer? Is he into computers? And I was like, you've limited this kid's entire future to three possibilities in high school. And my uncle replied and said, right now, he's only interested in girls. I was like, smart kid. That's what he should be interested in when he's 16. Um, But again, there's that paradox at play because that is the conditioning, particularly in immigrant families, which gets us into places like a Columbia, like an MIT. So how do you begin to unwind that when it's so deeply embedded into people's psyche by the time they arrive at a place where they have these opportunities? Because I can tell you right now that if I went back to Berkeley, I... Feel like i would see a different school i remember reading this book by ori Braffman, who happened to also be at berkeley at the same time i was and he talked about you know doing research in professors labs and all these different things and i felt like he was describing a university that was completely different than the one that i went to so you know that that's one comment and then the follow-up to that is what advice have you been giving your daughter about career paths and, and how has your own experience played a role in, in how you're informing her
1: Yeah, no, thank you for asking. Um, On your first question, there's a quote from Yogananda that has had deep import in my life. And he says, be in the world, but not of the world. And it is that balance between striving to go within, be the most authentic and true version of yourself, Master and tame, you know, the inner demons that we have to because being the true version of yourself doesn't mean that you can just like follow every instinct and indulge every habit or, you know, etc. It means doing a little bit of good inner kind of tilling of the soil to get to discover the, the wealth and the gold within. But as we do, as we discover the things that truly inspire us, the things that we feel uniquely gifted and prepared to offer and express in the world the commitments that bring us so much fulfillment that we do not really feel bad about sacrificing so many of the traditional kind of material hungers of the world, because we know we are following our own hero's journey. That's the, but not of the world part of the quote, right? But then he also says, be in the world. And that part means we have to respect that ultimately, you know, we are, in nature always going to be coexisting with the rest of nature and there's this give and take and there's this you know enrichment and service that we both gain and give to the community around us and in doing so there will be these traps that we can fall into of limiting ideas and thoughts and kind of like fixed you know kind of structures that emerge first from within our own caregivers and our family, because they have those in their own unconscious way that they seek to impart to us. And then, you know, the milieu of like friends, you know, around us. And then these institutions like in education and, you know, our, our, our workplace and, and, and our media and what have you. And, and there's, you know, there's this dialectic, you know, that there's back and forth between, you know, being in that, being in that because you want to serve, you want to, you want to be in a position to kind of, have meaningful engagement, you know. With you can't be a Robinson Crusoe on an island, so you 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 want to be connected, and you got to be relevant, and you want to engage, and you got to have impact. But in doing that, can you also stay unshackled from whatever implicit constraints they're putting on you in the story that you shared? Which you know, I, I was smiling at because, of course, any anybody who's grown up, you know, with that Indian upbringing, you know, can relate to it. The constraints there that you know originally I used to see was why are these parents not also open to this other career On this other career or being an entrepreneur or being a this or being a that, right? But more recently, I've started to recognize the limiting nature of even that frame, because that frame still accepts the manner in which we have drawn boundaries in the world. And wouldn't it be even more important to see yourself as boundaryless, to see that you know, these labels that we attribute to certain kinds of professions are merely that. They're merely labels. Why can, you know, I at the same time not be an entrepreneur and an educator and a writer and a student, you know, and, and a social activist at the same time? Right? What, what do what do we have to pick from some of these disciplines? So that's you know, so that's my my, my thought and that and the first one. That my striving here has been to really um seek to Cultivate that sense of autonomy and independence and free space and distance and kinship with that voice within, while at the same time, finding a way to fit in and meet people where they are and connect with the constraints and possibilities that the present times, you know, offer to us.
0: Yeah. And with regards to your daughter, I mean, part of the reason I asked that is, um, i it's interesting because I feel like you can get the same piece of advice at twenty and get that same piece of advice at the age of thirty, and it will land very differently. Um, and so I, I wonder because you know when I look yeah. at things like this, I think yeah. about how different my response to them yeah. is now at you know forty one or forty two. Uh, sorry, <laughs> my roommate always says I keep forgetting how old I am, um, yeah. which is good. Uh, but the the thing is that. Now I'm much more receptive, I think, partially because I've had enough life experience, enough data points to appreciate that. But if I heard you at my parents' house, I would have been like, ah, this sounds like some old uncle who has no idea what the hell he's talking about when I was 18. Um, So I wonder, you know, when guiding your daughter, you know, sort of with your own knowledge and your own experience, you know, how has she received it and how has that impacted her own choices? And what advice would you give to parents listening to this?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, so so I know you're talking about my daughter and I'll come back to that, but I, you sparked something in me about my relationship with my father. So um, when he turned 80, my mother asked me if I could make a speech, you know, we were going to have some friends over, family over, it was going to be a celebration. And I got a little bit stuck. I was thinking, oh, wow, you know, this is going to be a seminal moment. And here's my, you know, opportunity to pay, pay homage to, this amazing institution in my life. And what am I going to say? (laughs) And for a while, I was a little bit struggling because I I realized that, you know, a lot of the advice he gave me, I challenged it and I basically walked away from it. You know, And, and so then I asked myself, like, what am I going to say if like I did things my way and I didn't do things his way as to his impact on my life? And so after struggling with it for a while, the insight came to me. And here is the kind of like, you know, s- summary of the talk I actually gave in that moment, because because I, you know, I had these guests there and he was there. I still remember the moment in the back lawn of, of uh, their home where I'd grown up for so many decades, a couple of decades. And so I, you know, I essentially offered the following thought, right? Which is that, you know, my father said, we you know, we shouldn't have any dogs and I wanted a dog and we got a dog. My father said, like, you know, you should, you know, study here in in this hometown. And I said, no, I'm going to go to New Delhi. And, and, and I walked away. My father said, you should follow me in the Indian civil service and be a police officer. And I said, no, I'm going to study mathematics. My father said X and I did Y. And I said, like, that suggests that he really hasn't had much of an impact, you know, on me. But (laughs) while I felt that way for a few years as to what truly was my relationship with him, in my mid-20s and in my late 20s and in my early 30s, I started to have these experiences where suddenly a memory would flash in my mind of how my dad acted. When he lost his mother and the grace and resilience that he showed in that moment of how my dad acted, when there was a lot of political pressure on him to actually do things in a certain way to toe their line and to do things which would have been a little bit corrupt in nature and how he stood his ground, how he withstood even death threats with phone calls were coming to our home, threatening him, etc., and bravely made his way through that storm to the other side, keeping his spine straight. And what that taught me about the capacity in the human condition to take those kinds of calls, take those kinds of risks, be open to sacrificing at times certain material kind of outcomes in order to kind of do things the right way to get that richness from within. How he acted in in service, selfless service to so many people who would be knocking on our doors all day long, wanting to just kind of help him, help him, use the agency of his office, to kind of maximize the amount of help that he could give the world. And I started to ask myself, have I, Hitendra, helped anybody on this planet besides just pursue my own path to excellence at McKinsey and at MIT and this and that? Have I actually stood to my values and really connected with them in the same deep way he did, et cetera? And the lesson I learned from those introspections and where they took me was that he had had a huge impact on my life. And the way he had that impact was not in the truths and ideas that he sought to preach to me and teach to me, but from the truths and ideas that he sought to live in his own life. And just the subconscious absorption of all of those data points, all of those experiences, all of those dinnertime conversations that happened between my mother and my father and what I was observing in those moments as to the choices and the emotions and the thoughts of what was happening. Subconsciously at a deep level, it was getting embedded in me and it was gonna come out at the right time and bear fruit. So that has been I guess like the biggest quest that both my wife and I have been on which is how do we strive in a sense to be like the best versions of ourselves to show show our daughter that we are works in progress that we make mistakes that we can we can apologize we can we can respect you know you know uh, her ideas and judgments even though she might be you know a couple of decades or more you know younger than us and 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 that we're striving to to really anchor ourselves from within and to Engage with the world in a harmonious way, respectful way, joyful way, loving way, but never get ourselves too lost in the affairs of the world. And then see, you know, what, what she takes away, takes away from that. Yes, of course, there are those more coaching and mentoring, (laughs) but, uh, examples that one can strive to set as best one can in one's own imperfect way.
0: Wow. I, I love that. That was so beautiful. Um, so I do actually want to ask you one one other thing. This is something I'm I'm just morbidly curious about from a personal level. So Indians are, or at least, you know, my parents are, I, we jokingly say are notorious for their inability to express emotions or, you know, show love in the way that we wanted to. Like you look at sort of the love languages thing and mine happened to be words of affirmation and physical touch. And I think I've seen my parents kiss each other once in their entire lives. Yeah. Uh but, but the, the, the funny thing is that there's this other side to unconditional love, particularly in Indian communities, where it doesn't seem to matter how bad things get, how old you are, or how much your life has fallen apart, somehow their door is always open, no matter what. That is their sort of ultimate expression of unconditional love. Why is that? Like, What is it about Indian families and Indian communities that, that creates
1: that? Very deep, uh, very deep question. I, I appreciate very much the spirit in it. And um, I do really feel such a sense of gratitude for that quality that you have just uh, identified. Because, um, because, you know, at a broad level, I would say that, um, you know, while, while um, you know, I, I actually, l- let me share it this way. Uh, there is a commencement address that Mother Teresa gave at, uh, at Harvard University when she was being fated and given an honorary doctorate. And she was there in front of the, you know, recently minting graduates you know, of that time. And she said, she said that, you know, I come here to America and people tell me, mother, why are you here? You know, your work lies in a place like Calcutta because there's so much, you know, there's so much uh, poverty there. There's so much hunger there. You know, here there's no poverty, there's no hunger. And she says, yes, there is a poverty and there is a hunger I see here there is a hunger here for love. And she says, I want you to go back into your families and look for the person who's the most hungry for love, and then just give them your unconditional love. And uh, so I love that idea that there's outer poverty, but there's also inner poverty. And one of the things, even in the modest kind of, you know, accoutrements of a life in a developing, you know, kind of economy like India, that one was definitely very blessed to have, which you know, and not necessarily true of all families and not necessarily that you don't get that in other parts of the world, but that I feel very blessed by, as to your point, is that unconditional love. Um, where does it come from? It's, it's a beautiful question you know, to ask. I mean, I think at some level, uh, it comes perhaps, and this is just a hypothesis, I wouldn't claim to be an expert, and I'd be curious about your reactions and thoughts on this. It comes from a way in which one is brought up to have a different relationship with love than perhaps, you know, the more modern, in a sense, more, more, more Western view, you know, the more modern and Western view at times can be that it's a very, it's a very personal thing. It's a very, um, in and out thing. You fall in love and you fall out of love. And it's, um, you know, it's just natural that when you feel it, you feel it. When you don't feel it, you don't feel it. I mean, how can you ask me to be loving, you know, when I don't feel the love, you know, right now I'm, I'm kind of out of love and it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's therefore, it, it's something which is, which, is, which is done in a contained way, right? Like romantic love. You fall in love with one person or familial love. You know, you have two people and you, you just love them. But there's another form of love, you know, and there's another form of love, which is that it's just an energy in the universe. And when you connect with it, it flows through you. And when it flows through you, it does not discriminate. It's like the flame of a candle. It just uh, warms up anything which is within reach, And that is the intent, you know. And that is the purpose of this love—to just offer it up to whoever is there, and and you don't judge that, you know. That wasp is behaving well, and that wasp is not. And so I'll shed more light and warmth to that one, and not to that one. It's just a light that you have, and you just want to offer it up to the world. And I think that's at least what I I discovered in um, you know, in my reflections on this quality of love that uh, one one grew up with, you know, to strive to cultivate and be the best, um, in a sense, channel through which to flow something which is an ever present energy.
0: Hmm. I love that. It, it's it's funny because like I said sometimes you know like they'll say do things where you're like this is you know not loving but then the very thing that counters it is like okay it's unconditional it's just not it's often not expressed in the way that maybe we want it to be. Um so let's let's actually shift gears a little bit here. Um and talk about this idea of consciousness, and and the reason this is is interesting to me is because um, you know I, I was living in this town uh, you know a couple of years ago, and there is like a, a Facebook group about consciousness, and I remember calling a friend of mine who is also you know very sort of like you know uh, self aware into a lot of personal development, and uh, you know, I said hey Charmaine, can I ask you what it actually means to be conscious because according to this Facebook group, it means that you're out of touch with reality. Uh, so you having the background that you do sort of being able to blend sort of the intellectual with the spiritual, what exactly does it mean to be conscious?
1: Um, again, powerful question. And I, you know, I don't know how much justice I can do to it, but let me, let me attempt at least to give you my journey into, into awareness about consciousness. Um, I think, you know, I like to see that it exists at various levels and there is value and power to each level at which one can operate, you know, consciously. So there is, if you want to call it material consciousness, which is to be aware of the material conditions of where you are and the constraints and the opportunities and the possibilities and the aesthetics, you know, and the science of that material physical plane. And I think that level of consciousness is one thing that, for example, the Western world has really sought to master. And in the East, you know, especially, let's say, the country I know, like India, over the centuries, it is something that uh, got a little bit sort of compromised. Um, And so that awareness, you know, of the material and the physical plane is somewhat less there. The consciousness at that level is somewhat less present in in you know in, in traditional and modern times in, in, in India, it's growing, but but it's it's still it's still something that we are playing catch up to the West. I, I think it was there like five thousand years ago, but but it's but it's it's gone to to a different place. But then there's another kind of consciousness, right? Where I can be conscious of my stirrings from within. I can be conscious of the fact that you know what here we are. Let's say drinking beer, watching a ball game, and my friend just made a remark that everyone is laughing about, but that from within, I just had a fleeting feeling of discomfort because maybe that remark was a little bit derisive about an individual or a community and I don't subscribe to that. And that's what that feeling from within just informed me, but I let it go in the fun and frolic of like the conversation that's happening and the beer that's flowing and the television screen that's in front of us. So Would you call that a conscious moment because you're very connected with all of the outer material? Or would you call that a moment where your consciousness is compromised because you didn't pay attention and pay homage and find a way to act upon that fleeting feeling that arose from within, right? And so I think that once we start to recognize that there's not just outer reality, but also inner reality, then one can start to ask how many of us are actually consciously aware of that inner reality? and are connected with it, acting upon it, being guided by it, using it as just another source of information. And then one can ask, well, am I not just being aware of my inner reality? Am I aware of the inner reality of my colleagues, of my friends, of the members of my family, that they're saying one thing, but I see a little bit of something in their voice or in their facial expression that suggests to me that the reality behind the seals might be something else? And maybe I need to tune into that and sense and understand their inner consciousness, not just their outer. Now, if you start to accept that idea, then in some ways, the sky's the limit in terms of how much discovery one can do or what that inner consciousness might be about. Because you start to discover there's a plane of thought, there's a plane of emotions, but there's a plane even deeper that truth seekers of the past, mystics of all traditions, People engage in deep quests of concentrated prayer and chanting and mindfulness and meditation or walks where they feel a deep connection with nature. And you are all of those people have intuited that, you know, or, or the transcendentalists here in, you know, in America, like, like, you know, Henry Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, they intuited that there is actually a level of consciousness that operates as just a state of being. As something that I access when I can put to rest a little bit, the more distracted frames of thought and emotions and actions and senses. And when I get there, I feel whole, I feel timeless, I feel universally connected, I feel my true self. And many of us might be perhaps asleep to that level of our consciousness in our everyday lives, but when we take on some of these practices, or every now and then on a retreat or a certain moment, we get a flash, a glimpse of that gold within. Perhaps if nothing else, is showing us, you know, that um, there's so much more to expanding and deepening our consciousness than we may experience in everyday moments in life. And just to kind of like add as a quota, you know, to this conversation, I remember sitting in a movie theater in the pre-COVID days with uh, a dear friend of mine. And, uh, you know, as you watch, you know, just kind of like having the intermission cause this was in India and, you know, we have these intermissions, you know, these intervals in the middle of the film, as, as you, as you might know, if you, if you, you know, you know kind of spend some time there. Shumas. And so at the intermission, we were just having a little bit of the back and forth. And she said, Hatendra, you know, this thing you talk about, like joy and meditation and peace and meditation and this connection and all of that, you know, it seems so, it seems so unreal. You know, it seems so like just intangible and just like, you know, it's just like so, so hard to kind of like, fathom. And I, I, I looked at her, you know, because I was in her shoes for, for many, many years when I was drawn to this, but not really pursuing it, you know, since the age of 10, all the way to like my early 30s. But then I've gone into it and, and now it's been like, you know, 18 plus years. So I, I've seen both sides of it. And so I looked at her and I smiled and I said, you know, I'll tell you this. That experience of who I am is so much more real to me And I have so much more conviction that it is true than I have conviction that you and I are sitting here right now, having this conversation in the middle of this film. And she looked at me startled. And I said, well, here's why. Because you and me, we are going to finish this experience. And once it's done, it's done. And five years from now, it'll be like a fading memory. And 10 years from now, I may not even be able to recall the film. And perhaps at some point, I may not be able to recall the conversation we had. So is this real or is it a dream? Tomorrow, it's going to be some combination of those. But this thing that I have within, it is changeless. It is eternal. It keeps getting reinforced. It's the same and it's always there. Anyway, that's uh, a couple of thoughts on consciousness. Wow.
0: <laughs> I can see why you are one of the most popular professors uh, at Columbia. Um, so... you know, I, there are two other questions that I have about this is, you know, how does this play out in the world of, of leadership roles? Um, you know, where do we apply this? I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, we've been more or less talking about leadership throughout this entire conversation without necessarily calling it that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think, I mean, you know, I, I, I've had the privilege of going to different parts of the world and, you know, kind of having conversations, you know, giving talks, uh, consulting, training, et cetera. And what I find to your point is that, um First of all, there's the semantics of leadership. Like, what do you mean by leadership? And the word carries different baggage, you know, in different parts of the world. And also in our own culture, you know, we have gone through highs and lows with regard to leaders. And so I, I just want to kind of like unpack that word for a minute. Right. And and so, you know, for many of us in, in the West, you know, leadership is, is seen as somebody in a position of power and authority, you know, with a certain amount of resources and certain people reporting to them. And then unleashing their genius, you know, on, 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 on their organization, their community, their movement, et cetera. And I would, I would want to invite us to maybe challenge that, you know, to refresh that. And I would say that, you know, in some ways, we can think of each of us in any role being invited by life to have the maximum positive impact we can in that role, in that moment, in the best ways we can, with the resources we have. And here's he a way for me to illustrate that. You know, a friend of mine shared the story. Uh, he, he's actually a monk, you know, he's in India. And he said, Hey, let, let me share this very sweet moment, you know, with you. I, I was, you know, in, in this very small town and I was walking by on the street and there was this, you know, this, this homeless person, you know, asking for arms, you know, for, for money, you know, to kind of like support himself. And I, I took, you know, kind of like sympathy, you know, with, with this with this man, he, he was, he was, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a a paraplegic, he he didn't have his lower part of his legs and he was sitting there. And so I, I I saw a tea stall and I I said, you know, let's, let's, let's buy you some tea. Would you like some tea? And he said, sir, that would be very kind of you. And so I I bought him a cup of tea and and I placed it, you know, with him. And then I started to walk away. And I noticed that he was dropping a little bit of the tea on, on the ground. Um, And then he took his first sip And I was curious, you know, here's a man who's really hungry. I've given him the gift of this tea and he's wasting some of it, you know, on the ground. Is this some kind of like crazy ritual that he's following? And so I went back to him and I said, like, you know, sir, I'm just curious. Why did you do that? Why did you waste some of the tea when you could have had all of it? And the man, he said, looks at me very sheepishly. And he says, look, let me show you what happened here. He said, the thing is, like, I can't consume anything that is given to me without sharing it. And he said, come here, look, come here, look. He said very excitedly. And that tea that he had dropped had made a little puddle on that muddy street. And there were a few ants that were making their way to the tea and drinking of it. And that to me is leadership. You know, leadership is this act of saying, based on whatever resources I've been given, how can I have the maximum positive impact within my sphere of influence? And if every parent adopted it, if every citizen adopted it, if every frontline worker adopted it, if every child adopted it, if every you know traditional form of leader adopted that, how can I bring out the best in you and the best in me, in pursuing some kind of noble, positive purpose and have the maximum positive impact? You know, if that's a view of leadership, then um, then I think collectively humanity could rise to that to that place that Gandhi saw, right? Because he, he Gandhi said once he said, you know, the difference between what we do and what we are capable of doing would be enough to solve most of the world's problems. So if you define leadership that way, then you're right. I think any anything and everything that we've been talking about really can be framed as this invitation from life to always, in every moment, seek to practice leadership. Oh. So um, I have two final questions for you.
0: You know, over the course of your life, you have accomplished by any account and sort of any external metric what most people would consider success. McKinsey. MIT, teaching at Columbia. I mean, that, that's sort of in, in many ways, particularly in the culture we grew up in, sort of the pinnacle of, of achievement. What I wonder is how your personal definition of success has changed with
1: age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a- another beautiful question, uh, Srinivas. Um, I'm actually, you know, in the process of codifying my journey in my work you know over the last decade uh into into a book. And uh this is very central to the thesis of that book. And the the thing that I, I can offer on this question of success is that there is there is outer success and then there's inner success. You know, and the the story that you know the MBAs that I you know hang around with at the business school that is most popularly associated with success is this moment where um, Alfred Nobel once uh, read his own obituary in the newspaper and suddenly realized that the world was gonna dislike and hate him, you know, because as the inventor of dynamite, this obituary said that here's a man who killed more people faster than ever before has died. And it turned out that the newspaper had it wrong. It was his twin brother who had died, not him. But when he realized the way the world would remember him, he turned a new leaf. And that's when he instituted the Nobel Prize series and he became more of a philanthropist and opened his heart up to like a whole different journey. And so there's this classic sort of view of success, right? Which is that it's what will be written on your tombstone. You know, that's what will define you as to being a success or a failure. You know, what footprints you left behind the sands of time with people. But I want to, I want to invite us to challenge even that idea. And I want to say that that's still a way of thinking about success from the outside. And there is another way of thinking about success, which is from the inside. And that definition comes from the following idea, which is that there's this theater, this theater of life. And each of us are actors as, you know, Shakespeare said so much more eloquently in his writing, we're actors in this theater of life and we have to play our role. And, this This notion of success being what will be written on your tombstone is the notion that I've got to, go to do my best job so that at Curtain Fall, I get a standing ovation from the audience. But what if, at Curtain Fall, we suddenly wake up to the realization that as you're taking your last bow, actually the only person whose appreciation and respect you're looking for? is you yourself. In other words, you realize that the only thing that you really wanted to do and achieve and accomplish is to get to a place where in that moment of passing you can feel whole, you can feel complete, you can feel you've done your best, you can feel like you maximized the moments of life in a way that really harmonized Life gave you and what you gave back to life. And so that's what I call inner success, that metric through which we will measure our own selves and the feelings that will be evoked in us at that moment when we are seeing curtain fall and are gracefully departing from that stage of life. Wow.
0: So I have one uh, final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews here on The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is? that makes somebody
1: or something unmistakable? Sorry, would you mind repeating that? I don't think I I heard your question.
0: No worries. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Inner charisma. Inner charisma is where it is not merely what you're saying or doing from the outside, but it is the truths that you have lived from the inside. And they just show up in you. You don't even have to Speak a word. You don't even have to perform. Just being in your presence can somehow activate that consciousness in others. I've seen that from my studies of some of these, you know, inspiring figures, and from the presence of some of these kinds of people that I've had the privilege of spending time with. Um, you know, for example, in my study of, you know, Steve Jobs. I mean, people said when you were in his presence, you just felt you could be so much more creative than otherwise. People have said that in the presence of Mother Teresa, you just felt so much more compassionate for the world, compassion for the world. You know, people have said in front of Winston Churchill in the Second World War, you just felt so much more courage. So the capacity in these people to have lived those truths in a way so that just being in their presence just invoked these soul qualities of creativity and compassion and courage. That's what I call inner charisma. And that's, I think, the ultimate signature. Of every individual is the way I think about it. I know you've got many brilliant answers to that question in the past. <laughs> I
0: loved that answer. Uh, this has to have been one of my favorite conversations um, that I've had this year. Um, it has just been breathtaking, beautiful, eye-opening. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story, your, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. I am so thrilled that uh, I got to share you with my audience and even learn about your work myself. I, in fact, I was thinking, I was like, why hasn't this guy written a book? So let us know when you write that book, because I definitely will be one of the first people to buy it. Um, where can people find out more uh, about you, uh, your work and everything else that you're up to?
1: yeah I, i'm grateful and and uh, you challenged me you know your your questions are deep and they're sweeping in import and uh, you know i had to really work hard towards making sure i could give you answers i can feel a certain responsibility and ownership over so so thank you for taking the audience and taking me to that profound place which is clearly a craft that you you're a master at uh, shrinivas um, and and thank you for inviting that um next stage connection that anyone in the audience who's interested in my work can have uh, with with my journey. Um, I would offer the following. Um, besides my teaching at Columbia, I have founded and I run an institute, Mentora Institute, M-E-N-T-O-R-A. And so Mentora.institute is our address. We primarily serve organizations in helping do leadership and culture development. And we're working as well towards more of a, direct-to-consumer model that should be unveiled somewhere in the next year. But for now, it's a place where you can go to to understand how we serve organizations. We've done work in the public sector, we've done work with nonprofits, but a lot of our work is in the corporate sort of business world. In addition, there is my personal website, hitendra.com, so H-I-T-E-N-D-R-A.com. And there, you'll be able to sign up if you're interested for my newsletter and also for getting updates on a webcast that I run about every couple of thursdays called intersections where my aspiration is to bring a guest and have conversations at least you know a third as stimulating as the one that you draw from your people shrinivas <laughs> because i'm still a student you know of this discipline that you that you are such a master at but in intersections our goal is to help create these kinds of fusions these dissolving of boundaries, these intersections between purpose and profit and inner and outer and East and West and science and spirituality and and beyond. So uh, yeah, I'd certainly be happy and encouraging of anyone who's so drawn to it to come to HNRO.com as well. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm, I'm deeply honored and privileged to be part of this. Absolutely, I'll be reaching out to you when I get closer to having the book be announced and published and grateful for all the work that you're doing to bring curiosity and a deep sense of connection and reflection to a world that is hurting and really yearning and needing that. Thank you, Shrimas.
0: Thank you. And for everyone listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch.